Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. I'm Jason Kuznicki. Joining me today is Helena Rosenblatt. She's professor of history at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York, and Daniel Klein, professor of economics and gin chair at the Mercatus Center, George Mason University. He leads the Smithian Political Economy Program at GMU Economics. The two have been in debate with each other for some time about the history and meaning of liberalism. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. What is liberalism? That's the big question, isn't it? Um, there's so much confusion and actual, um, you know, debate about the issue. I, actually, a lot of people, I think, are con confused about what they really mean. So uh, one of the things I do in, in my book, my recent book, The Lost History of Liberalism, is that, that I explain um, that it's not just one thing. It has indeed been debated uh, over its history. And um, it's a cluster of concepts that gets uh, redefined, reinvented uh, over, over time as circumstances change, as problems change, liberals change what they're for. Um, yeah. In my view, the first political meaning of the adjective liberal came in the 1770s. And the best way to sum up what it meant was Adam Smith's expression, allowing every man to pursue his own interest, his own way. And that idea that he expounded and people totally picked up on, that was the start of the political meaning of the word liberal, which then naturally later got turned into liberalism. What this qualifier of political meaning of liberalism what what is that what work is that doing as far as this definition goes well yeah here i i do have some disagreements uh, with dan which is that i think he economizes the word political um at a time when morals and politics and economics were were conjoined um i would say that the that um when liberals spoke about a political meaning early liberals they also spoke about constitutions they spoke uh, as much about uh, state building as they did about limiting um, states and that it wasn't just about rights and interests. I think that there's not much of that to start, at least not in the wealth of nations. There's not that much about constitutions and state building at all. It presupposes a stable, integrated polity and explores policymaking within that framework. And I think that that kind of framework is the dominant way of thinking about the liberal plan, the liberal system, liberal government, liberal ideas, liberal principles, as those, as those important expressions emerged from the 1770s. So I do think that the stuff about constitutions, state formation naturally come into play, but I don't think that's very prominent at the beginning. Dugald Stewart says this very explicitly. You seem to be starting very late in the history of liberalism as as many people would uh, have it one very common definition of a liberal political thinker is that a liberal political thinker is one who places liberty as the most important or the highest political value and if you go by that definition then a lot of political thinkers uh, are included well before Adam Smith. Uh, even someone like Thomas Hobbes would qualify as a liberal in this sense and that he believed that the purpose of government was indeed to secure liberty. Now, his definition of liberty was rather different from probably that of anyone now living. 
but we might still be able to plausibly put him in the liberal camp. What's wrong with that definition? Um, if I may jump in here, um, I would disagree with both of you. Um, go figure. Uh, liberal had a very different meeting in, in Hobbes' time. Uh, what I do in my book is I actually uh, follow and trace the word liberal and its meaning beginning in Rome and going up until today. And I disagree with um, Dan that, um, first of all, that he would choose Adam Smith as a liberal thinker is an arbitrary choice that he takes, I think, for political reasons reasons. Um, and I would say that the real political meaning uh, that liberalism is born in the wake of the French Revolution. That's when the word is first coined. The word is first used in 1810 or around that. And it refers to the principles of the first revolutionaries. So I, I think it's problematic to call, certainly very problematic to call Hobbes a liberal since he was uh, an, for absolute monarchy. And I think um, that Adam Smith would never have thought of himself as a founder or precursor of liberalism in the way that we use the term today or that it was used in the early 19th century. Um, you know, to be liberal uh, meant something um, special in Rome. Um, I can go into this, but I don't want to monopolize right now on this this um, this particular question. I'm sure Diane wants to jump in. Well, I can, if I can just ask a quick yeah. follow-up. Those... What were those principles of the first revolutionaries that you said the word liberal attaches to? All right. Well, somebody like Benjamin Constant, who I um, say is an early, is one of the first people to use the word in liberal in the sense of a political movement standing for a cluster of concepts, constitutional rule, uh, the rule of law, civil equality, representative constitutional government, and a number of individual rights. Uh, first among which I would say was um, freedom of religion. Religion, freedom of thought. Uh, private property was was important. Um, freedom of property was important, but it was never at the top of the list. So that was the early, um, those were the early principles of, of liberalism. But over time, uh, and as I said before, as uh, changes uh, occurred in the economy, there were developments, um, there actually uh, were liberals started to see uh, the problems of, of industrial revolution, of pauperism in the cities, new problems that arose uh, that were quite different from what the early uh, liberals uh, dealt with. They became open to more state intervention. They started actually to talk about the economy more and see uh, the necessity for government to step in. And they started to talk um, in this way about liberalism. I would not at all disagree that uh, Constant was a liberal. He certainly was and, and used the term. Uh, what is wrong with applying the term to people who did not use it? If we find similarities between the thought of later liberals and the thought of, of earlier people who perhaps didn't use the term. Can't we push the, the uh, envelope a little bit? Can we uh, include some people retroactively even if they didn't use that word? I'm all for looking at people retrospectively as liberal, maybe thinking of them as proto-liberal. We can do that and we go back. I don't know how far we go back, uh, as far as the, as old as the idea of liberty is, I suppose. Um, but we're interested, we're kind of focusing on, and Ellen and I have a disagreement about where the term starts. And 
Smith does use the term. Smith, I think, very deliberately christens his plan, his outlook, his science of a legislator, liberal. I think he does this in a signal way, and I think people saw it, and I think that's why they immediately picked up on it, and that's why that idea got grounded, and that's why Constant called what he did liberal. So it starts in the 1770s in Britain, and it's exported to France and elsewhere. It's not the other way around. Can you map out just for our listeners who don't know Smith that well, the, the core of these ideas and the projects that he was doing? Yeah, it's it's in the wealth of nations. It's not in the theory of moral sentiments. And the wealth of nations is both a presentation of economic reasoning, how the economy works and so on, as well as a quite comprehensive treatment of public policy in his day. And he repeatedly used the term liberal, particularly, again, in signal moments, which I could highlight. And he propounded a presumption of liberty, an, an idea of reforming policy towards uh, greater liberty, like getting rid of corporations that, and guilds, uh, getting rid of the mercantile system of, of subsidies and protections, et cetera, et cetera, against price controls and those kinds of things. So he laid out this grand scheme of a kind of liberal nation state, a p liberal policy for an integrated nation state, you could say. Um, and that's that's to me is sort of liberalism 1.0, which I say remains basically the core, the spine of liberalism for a good 100 years, particularly in Britain. The problem with this approach um, that Dan is taking and that my um, that is being uh, taken by a lot of people is that it's full of anachronism, and it leads to all these different uh, conflicting uh, definitions of, of liberalism. Uh, you can there are people. When I started my history, I noticed that there were all these conf people. People have a hard time defining liberalism, uh, and they admit it, and then they will just say, "Oh well, um, I'll take it to be this," and they'll line up a bunch of things in chronological order, sort of cherry-picking ideas from the back and say, this is what liberalism is. And But then, depending on these thinkers, whether you choose Hobbes, which some people do, um, whether you whether you choose Smith, as others do, um, you could choose Lafayette, uh, you could choose lots of people um, and line them up and say, that's why I think liberalism is this. You have a lot of contradictions out there. Right now, as you know, I mean, there are in this country a discussion of what is a classical liberal, what is a liberal. They have a different definition of liberalism. In Europe, it means, you know, in colloquial parlance, uh, liberalism means small government, and here it means kind of big government. So why did this happen? Well, it has to do with who, who these thinkers are that you line up in chronological order. It, it'll look very different if you choose Hobbes or if you choose John Locke or if you choose Smith. So so that's why I, I took this other very new approach to the history of liberalism where I said, let's get rid of this anachronistic cherry picking to, to support our own definitions, and let's do this kind of thought experiment, which is what I'm doing. Let's reset the debate by looking at what people at the time meant when they used the word. What And frankly, there was no liberalism when Adam Smith wrote. He could not have known what liberalism was. He didn't call himself a proto-liberal. Liberal was an adjective. But you adjective. agree that he knew what the liberal plan was, since it was his expression. Liberal plan meant a generous, open, tolerant plan. It meant being generous and open-minded. That's what it meant. It did not mean... 
you know. He drew a direct contrast with the organizational view of the economy he attributed to Colbert. That's where he uses the expression. I That's where he uses the expression, the liberal plan of equality, liberty and justice, and where he explains it as allowing every man to pursue his own interest his own way. I mean, it's right. It's there. No, no, I know, this isn't but why are we stopping picking. at Smith? May I ask a question? This might might clarify the dispute a little bit. It is often the case in intellectual history that historians identify a tendency retrospectively. So in the Middle Ages, there's what was called the conciliar movement in Europe. In, in European Catholicism, this is a tendency to privilege the powers and the prerogatives of church councils as being in some way superior to or guiding that of the pope. People who were in the conciliar movement didn't say, I'm a conciliarist. They didn't say, I believe in conciliarism. They didn't write books that said, this is why conciliarism is right. They talked about it without using the term. Isn't that possible for liberalism as well? They can talk about aspects of it, but they won't have a self-conscious understanding of, of being liberal. Would and, you... and you can... And, <laughs> sorry, sorry, go ahead. But uh, again, you can do all sorts of things. And I understand we use concepts to kind of explain, to categorize and explain history. But I'll say again that um, that sort of approach becomes very personal, becomes very subjective, and leads to a lot of a lot of arguments among historians. In the case of Dan, it, 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 um, I think it uh, results in a very truncated and distorted view of liberalism because it's all about the economy for Dan. It's all about small government, and that simply isn't true. Is it really all about small government? Is it really all about the economy? I would I would say, I mean, I'll, I'll throw the case of Hobbes aside for now because he's a weirdo. But, <laughs> Thank you. But there, there were a lot of contemporaries of Hobbes that I'm not so interested in throwing away. What about the levelers? Weren't they liberals? Again, I don't mind projecting the term backward. Um, so I don't mind saying them, calling them that if that's how we're understanding the use of the term. And they weren't terribly interested in economic issues. They were concerned about religious issues. They were concerned about having regular and fair elections for parliament. They were concerned about things like censorship and the freedom of conscience. I'm not trying to narrow the term liberal to just the one definition. I'm just saying that the first political meaning and the paramount one was allowing every man to pursue his own interest his own way. But it could also mean, you know, pray the way you want or practice the religion you want at the very same time. So that's, well, that's not part of allowing every man, man to pursue his own interest. Yes, interest. It's broad. Can I go back? I mean, you said Adam Smith wouldn't have thought of himself as a liberal. Would you say that Edmund Burke would have thought of himself as a conservative? I haven't checked. Um, no, probably not. He because have the term himself. conservatism isn't invented until the 1830s. Yeah, I don't think he would have described himself so, as conservative. But you you describe him that way in your book. <laughs> <laughs> Twice. You have to show me. I, show I, me I, the I, I can tell you the oh, pages. Oh, well, I embody contradictions. Oh. <laughs> no. Um, anyway. Oh, well, so we have – we can tell when the first use of the explicit term liberalism was. And – we can potentially attach liberalism as a political concept as Dan is doing to a particular thinker at a particular time. Um, but has how is the term – I mean so the earliest uses of it is different than the way that Smith was using it. And as you pointed out, we use it like in the US. We use it differently than we do in Europe. What is that that evolution looked like? And, and does that evolution and the fact that the 
the meaning of the term hasn't just shifted but has fractured in some ways, does does that then – should we look at the, his, the prior history of it in, in similar ways? Like does that, that splintering affect the way that we should look backwards on it, recognizing kind of the malleability of it? You mean after it starts as a political term, having some political meaning, right? So I'm saying, so let's let's just say, like post Smith, it's the the mm-hmm. word has has yeah. split into multiple meanings, and individual meanings have shifted over time. Um, and geography, yes. So so tracing out that evolution, and then does that info- evolution color the way that we ought to look backwards? Well, I think that we can. Uh, you know, again, there's been. Uh, a lot of debate and argument among self-defined, self-described liberals about the meaning of a true liberalism. This is a, 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 a term that comes up lots uh, in over the course of the history 19th, 20th century. What is true liberalism? Uh, so uh, even among liberals, they, they discuss this. But really the break, the division happens um, in a major way towards the end of the 19th century, as I was saying before with the rise of the with industrialization and urbanization and this feeling that uh, large swaths of the population are being left behind these were issues you know economics uh, uh, the poor freedom of trade were discussed before among the early liberals but but the the issue of the economy becomes so glaringly apparent uh, plus there's a lot of they've uh, obtained parliamentary government and representation in in France and and in Germany and in England. So now they're really looking at the economy. It becomes a very, very pressing issue. Um, these issues were there at the beginning, but they just become more important uh, later on. And these two, uh, these divisions happen also because of the uh, revolutions of 1848, 1830, 1848, and the rise of some liberals say we're going, you know, some liberals start to say we really need a government to step in and to intervene and to help, you know, with income redistribution and regulation and such things. Uh, and other liberals say, no, 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 um, that's not the way to go. We should just have free trade, laissez-faire, and so on. And so they actually split into two kind of that we might want to call traditions. Yeah, I generally agree with that. I mean, you and I mostly disagree about the earlier stuff um but i and and so i i agree with that and i think an important moment in transition is understanding that the liberal party right there's the political party which has the name liberal changes its character in the late 18 uh 1800s so that's very significant and then after that happens the term liberal starts particularly in north america starts being picked up it's basically in a lefty way what accounts for this is, as you mentioned it, um, that there was the sudden concern for on the for on the economic side, but but framed as looking at inequality, looking at kind of the plight of the common man, and that rising up as a political concern, um, and it's it's a shift too in seeing economic issues as being about the people and the good and interests of the people, which was something. Smith in particular, like one of the things that he's trying to do in The Wealth of Nations and pushing back against is seeing the – he doesn't want us to see the economic unit as the nation, right? Like that, you know, we – and we get money in our coffers and one of the reasons trade is bad, 
people said and Smith disagreed with was because it's money flowing out of like our national coffers and that's seeing that's seeing the unit as the nation and instead of the unit as the people. What accounts for that shift, that that sudden interest? Because it's not like it's not like inequality and the poor doing badly started then. Like that that's been that's been a human constant. Right. In the ancient Rome, the the poor think, weren't doing terribly well. So that that what causes that concern? I think that um I'll try to answer that question, but I think that there was a common sense of you know, up until maybe the nineteenth century or so or beyond, that there was little you could do about the poor. That uh the economy was the economy the poor will always be with us kind of thing. So generosity um to the poor, charity to the poor was was a good thing, but almost uh, mostly considered for the actual giver. That it was a way of showing your largesse, your sympathy for the poor and so on. It wasn't really expected to raise the poor up in any kind of a major way. I think with the uh, probably with the field of economics and with the changes that people could see in the economy, people started to see huge amounts of wealth generated very quickly. And then it became very obvious that some people were not rising up. Some people were stuck in poverty. Meanwhile, there were theories, you know, espousing free markets and all of this, that this was the answer to everything, and clearly it wasn't because all these people were 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 basically stuck and couldn't lift themselves up. So ideas began to change. I, I just would add that I think I look at Smith as coming out of a whole tradition of natural jurisprudence that's quite theological. Can you unpack that a bit? Like natural jurisprudence, what that is, and then how it's theological. If you think of Grotius, Pufendorf, and then in um, and then in Scotland, Carmichael and Hutchison, and then Hume and Smith, um, and so these guys are all about you know God's universal love for all of humankind. So I don't really buy this idea that I mean Smith did do something remarkable in propounding that the poor are equal ethically, you know, overall, uh, and, and pushing that point. But it's not as though he, he, I mean, his teacher, Francis Hutchison, I'm sure felt the same way. So I don't see it as, if you think of the whole, um, yeah, that whole tradition of ethics, uh, uh, religious ethics, you might say, it, it puts a different cast on the matter. We spoke about generosity or somebody did, maybe it was me. But um I think also, you know, it was something I, I talk about in my book is this word liberal and liberality. In my first chapter, I trace how these words changed over time, but that the core, um, the root of the word liberal is liber. Now, most people, when they say that, will say that, oh, it meant freedom. And of course, it does mean, it did mean freedom in Latin, but it also meant generosity. It also meant magnanimity. That's where you get the word liberality. There was the word liberality before there was liberalism. The idea of this was a being liberal was a quality of, of being a, a good citizen. It meant being devoted to the common good. Over time, this concept gets Christianized and eventually politicized. And I think this idea that you need to be generosity is necessary to bind a com country together is very crucial to the evolution of 
of liberalism. And early on, I think the idea was that maybe private charity, private generosity was enough to make the system cohere. But once you have uh, the, this industrialization and the problems I just uh, described earlier, there is the feeling that the government, it's not enough. Private charity is not enough. The government needs now to be generous and to step in and do this work of uh, allow, of making society cohere by by allowing for or encouraging uh, creating a certain amount, a, a sort of uh, a minimum amount of equality at least. How then does... I mean, we have lots of people today claim the the mantle of liberal, um, and what you've just described sounds like the way that liberals in the United States would describe themselves and would use the term. But you also have classical liberals, and then libertarians tend to think of ourselves as in at least some of us do at least in the liberal tradition, and would reject that core that you just laid out of that not reject generosity, but reject generosity as best operationalized via the state. So are you saying that you think it's then a mistake for classical liberals and libertarians to consider themselves part of the liberal tradition? No, no, no. I don't think I don't think that at all. I'm I'm saying that there are uh, different ways of being liberal, and that we can see that in history. Liberal is not one thing. Liberalism has not been one thing. Um, uh, I do, however, I would, however, say that throughout history, majority of liberals have not just been about self interest and individual rights, and certainly not just about property rights. They have also been about duties, about obligations to the to their country, um, and this goes way back to Rome, but it's con consistently and constantly repeated, also by these early liberals that I refer to, uh, you know, the, what I call the early liberals, not Smith, not Hume, but um, Benjamin Constant, for example, Madame de Stal, and throughout they keep they keep talking about how generosity is needed, how selflessness, self sacrifice is absolutely essential, um, that it's not just about um, self-interest. So, th so there are these two, and uh, they were in the majority is what I wanted to say. There were people saying, no, no, uh, you know, leave the economy to run itself, don't get involved with it, and so on, and then things will take care of themselves. But there were always other liberals saying, no, 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 you can't even call yourself liberal because you're narrow-minded. In look, Literally, I'm using the words, it's quoted in my book, they're saying you are narrow-minded, we are not about selfishness, what you are here proposing is selfishness, and that makes you illiberal, not liberal. In this matter, I have to say that I think this is a case where something gets stereotyped and misrepresented, and then when someone sees that um, um, something else doesn't fit the stereotype, they think, oh, therefore, the other thing... Because uh, I don't, I don't, I just don't think, you know, Adam Smith or anybody in the uh, older liberal tradition you know, ever said anything, you know, he wrote a book about virtues um, and the duties, including generosity. So, you know, this idea that classical liberalism somehow represents something um, that is not for liberality and all that, um, you know, I think is kind of a red herring. No, no, I, I, I totally uh, agree with uh, what you're saying now. I, I'm certainly not would never say that, you know, Smith was not a generous person or that libertarians aren't generous and civic-minded and so on. Um, I am saying that you're misreading Smith. 
Uh, and, In what way? Because I think that he was – you're misusing Smith. You're picking out parts of Smith, first of all, and that you're accentuating. You're not talking about the portions of Book 5 where he talks about government intervention, where he – I mean, the fact that he was for banking regulation, that he was for progressive taxation, that he was for invent, um, infrastructural uh, – and you don't talk about where he says in, in the moral sentiments that every good citizen has to be able to self-sacrifice and think about the put the common good um, – I'm not exactly quoting, but something like that, put the common good above the private good. You're not talking about those aspects of Smith. Who knows what Smith would say today? He had no idea what the world would look like today. But he was interested in empirical evidence. He was a, a, a large-minded, uh, educated person. He was an, interested in facts and data and how he would have reacted to the bunch of facts and data we have for him today and what he would have advocated. I don't know. Is he directly relevant to today, to liberalism today? I think he is. But is, Chase, isn't this uh, isn't this discussion sort of like arguing about whether Jesus was a Catholic or Protestant? I mean, the correct answer is neither. He was a Jew. And we're if we were to have that argument, we would be arguing about terms uh, that more precisely describe factions that did not arise until much later. And uh, it, it seems that if it is a mistake to say that the classical liberals so-called are the true liberals, then it is also a mistake by the exact same token to say that the modern liberals are the true liberals. Mm -hmm. uh, there was not so much of a perceived salient difference at that time. The difference was not between classical and modern liberals. It was between liberals and feudalists or people who were traditionalists in some way, who wanted the old order where the church was uh, ascendant, where it was, it, it was politically powerful, where you had a nobility that was hereditary, that enjoyed special privileges, where those who were not in the nobility had many more obligations than we would think proper for, for uh, the citizens of a, a liberal government today. And uh, arguing about whether the state should provide welfare or not, that was that was small stuff compared to what was going on at the time. It was. And most of when they were successful, uh, liberals knew who their enemies uh, were and they weren't uh, liberals. They weren't their fellow liberals. They were the conservatives, the counter-revolutionaries and so on. And when they d would not agree over these issues, as they didn't in Germany, for example, what did you get? I mean, you got Bismarck, you got right. terrible things happened when they couldn't agree on, on these issues. So they knew they were friends. They could argue over over uh, policy, economic policy, how much interest how much free trade and so on, but they certainly um, knew what side they were on. Uh, let me just comment that I think it's natural and great how to deal with these big disagreements about our own outlooks and politics. We go back to people that we both claim, in a sense, like Adam Smith, and we then have a discussion about, well, what did he really think or how does he you know, weigh in on these matters. I think that's right. And it, I think the Bible is a great um, analogy because people go back to the Bible because they all, if they all claim it and they kind of meet there to explore their differences. The I, And I think it's really great and cool how we tend to go back to Adam Smith in this conversation. <laughs> so you keep tracking us back. Well, then. maybe. But um, it seems to be happening much beyond just the two of us, in my view. Oh, there's a great conversation going on about Adam Smith. And I think it reflects this broader 
soul searching about liberalism because he is, I think it turns out, the paramount figure of this. And then, I mean, if we can agree that he's a liberal, that he's kind of a main figure, if not the paramount figure, and that then we have a conversation about, well, gee, what is he? What is his scheme of judgment? What is his way of seeing things? What is his view of governmentalizing social affairs? Um, Then that's a great conversation to have. We're like meeting it like someone we both want to embrace. What is it about – so bracketing the the ongoing debate about his place within kind of definitional liberalism, what is it about Smith – today that's having him play this role? What is it about his set of ideas that is making him a figure that we are going back to and looking to as someone who we want to know, kind of, we want to imagine what their judgment of our current situation would be? I, w- I, I mean, uh, Dan, as you know, I love Adam Smith. I mean, he's, he's, he's a great, great figure. So I never mind talking about him. I just think we're talking a little bit too much about him in this span of, of the history of liberalism. Okay. But, and, and I wish that our politicians would be talking about Adam Smith. I'm afraid they, they, they probably are not. And if they, and if they are, they're reading snippets of the wealth of nations and certainly not the theory of moral sentiments. I don't know if anybody wants to bite on this, but I've heard a very similar version of this discussion conducted around John Stuart Mill, uh, who is the true heir of the political thought of John Stuart Mill today? Is it the modern liberal, which you know, if, you, if you're going to make that case, you look to his later writings and his later more open support for or sympathy toward socialism. And if you are a classical liberal, you look toward his earlier writings and say, well, he kind of fell off the wagon later on and and that's unfortunate. But Look, you know, On Liberty is a, a fantastic libertarian book, and why don't we talk about him in those terms? But I guess there's, I mean, this could apply to both the conversation about Mill and the conversation about Smith and other figures as well. There's this this kind of looking back and claiming someone. There's a handful of ways that that can play out in terms of the way people approach it, um, and maybe we can analogize to the way that the Constitution gets used in the U.S. today. That on the one hand, you can look back to it and say, you know, there's. There's a great deal of wisdom embedded in this text, this set of ideas, and we should seek to – we recognize that wisdom and we should seek to learn from it and apply it forward to our existing thing, our existing problems and issues. Um, so we're trying to get to the, the core of what it really meant, which can be a very hard problem, but that's that's the goal. On the other hand, you can use it almost as a talisman of sorts that you're trying to you're trying to claim it in order to lend authority or gravitas to what you're already doing. You know, like I've got my set of ideas, I want to do them, and if I can get I can claim that this great thinker or this constitutional document or whatever backs me up, it it makes my argument more powerful and more persuasive. But those are two separate ways of approaching it. And so are we seeing when we're looking back to these these great thinkers of the past, which way are they being used? And so when you talk about the politicians not actually reading Smith, like to the extent then that they would cite him, although American politicians don't tend to cite past thinkers all that much, it looks more like the latter of the talismanic way. But is are we seeing one more than the other? I think we do both when we invoke authority. It's not only that we um, assert that this guy is with us, this great respected past figure but it's also a way of communicating like how to understand what you're saying 
Like, think of what I'm saying as, you know, he thinks about these things. So it is a, is a, it's also a way of clarifying, like, no, I mean more Hayek than Mises. I mean... <laughs> That's very clear. Well, there so is a, a difference. Despite, <laughs> it's not as fine as some people make out. But um, that's another matter. <laughs> I, think, I think this question is, is you know, fascinating and so important. I, I love um, w the question of when do people uh, adopt and use certain authorities and which authorities uh, do they then adopt for what purpose? So I'm, I'm, some people talk about, talk a lot about the sources of liberalism. We were talking about Hobbes and we were talking about Smith and there is no doubt that these people had an influence on the people I call liberals. So I'm not trying to say that they weren't influenced by them. But what are they doing with these thinkers? You know, and what at what point, for example, does John Locke become called a liberal? You know, he's not there in the beginning. They're not talking about John Locke. And I show in my, I thought it was so exciting, so interesting. And I built on, on um, uh, another person's work. Um, I keep forgetting if it's David Bell or Daniel Bell, wrote a really uh, excellent uh, article in uh, political theory, which I then developed, um, showing that John Locke becomes a founding father of liberalism in the interwar period. Like it starts in the 1930s. That's when they start talking about John Locke as a founder of Anglo-American liberalism is a term that's kind of uh, invented at this point, and we can understand why with the world wars and why the stress on property rights uh, when you have fascism and then socialism and then the Cold War. So this idea that liberalism is an Anglo-American tradition and that certain thinkers, among whom John Locke and his idea of property are so very central, is a very recent development in the history of, of liberalism. I'd be happy to uh, to agree with uh, some of what you've said. I've, I've seen you uh, argue elsewhere, I believe it was at uh, Timbro, that, uh, that uh, French liberals are, in fact, the true liberals in, in a sense. Uh, they are the ones who are first using the term liberalism as we now use it. And uh, to some extent, uh, Hayek threw them under the bus. And I, I, I agree with that. Uh, Hayek's biggest mistake was to dismiss French liberals and to characterize French political thought as systematic and top-down. It often was, but not always, certainly. And there certainly were French liberals that I think he gave uh, too little credit to. But uh, by the same token, those French liberals had some influence in the United States. Mm -hmm. People like Thomas Jefferson and and Paine and uh, even Mark Twain was very uh, openly uh, admiring of the early French Revolution and of the French liberalism that resulted from that. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I, I want to complicate this because no one is ever just influenced by one person. And so while Thomas Jefferson greatly admired what was happening in, in France and, and hoped for its success and... Uh, said good things about the French Revolution, he also wrote the Declaration of Independence. And it is very difficult to deny the influence of John Locke on that document. So uh, I, I would want to say, let's maybe maybe discount the influence of, of, of nationality or uh, you know, there's Anglo-American on one side and French on the other mm -hmm. and, and recognize that there's constant uh, 
cross cross fertilization here. Oh, absolutely, and, and I, I totally agree with you. And, and I, again, I I don't deny these. Um, I couldn't possibly deny all these influences on on liberalism. It's just you know which ones do you choose? There are so many. You know, I mean, somebody like Benjamin Constant, who also Hayek appreciated very much. Um, you know, who he was influenced by so many people, many of whom we don't even read today. Counter revolutionaries, obscure religious thinkers. Uh, German thinkers, you know, it's endless. So which ones are we going to pick out? I mean, that's why I, I adopted the method I, I adopted. Uh, the other thing is what you rightly say is um, people are, are, are in, there are so many influences. And how also do they read these thinkers? We have to remember that the way we read maybe Adam Smith today or John Locke today can be very different from the way he was read in the 18th century in in America or in France. They, they use these thinkers. And sometimes they bunch them together in ways that we just found ext- find extraordinary today. Americans read were capable of, of of putting a list of thinkers like John Locke and Rousseau together in the same sentence as if they were compatible. And today we think that's crazy. I just want to add that the uh, the issue of cherry picking is something that could be leveled against any of us. So I don't until some kind of method uh, is um, defended. It's not clear how you get around that. I do feel, though, however, that big data is one approach to get around that. And I think the big data shows results, particularly in engrams and similar techniques. What does that mean? An engram? Engram analysis. So uh, an like a two-gram would be like water bottle, two words in a string, water bottle. So if you type this into the Google engram viewer, you can see... The percentage that the two gram water bottle was of all two grams over time. And what is this? You're looking through this is looking through scanned text. Yes, millions of scanned books at Google Books. So when you put in the expressions that, as I say, rose up very dramatically, suddenly got latched onto and then promoted in the 1770s, beginning in the 1770s, liberal plan, liberal government, liberal system, liberal principles, liberal ideas. I mean, it's just totally dramatic and striking and compelling. And until Helena can, like, tell me why that isn't compelling to her, I'll be mystified. I don't know. I think it's totally compelling. I'm just disagreeing with your interpretation of the word liberal. I, I cannot uh, refute, you know, data. I, I believe in facts. Well, what's what about the interpretation is unclear? Because you're... you're you're saying that Smith, when he talks about liberal plan, that that makes him an, uh, a spokesperson or an advocate of liberalism. Uh, I, I'm saying yes. Well, he's an advocate of something. We agree For with sure. that. And he's. it seems like he's christening it liberal plan, liberal system. No, I know, but what does he mean by that? But Yeah, well, what does Adam Smith mean? In that particular context. Can I, can I ask a question about this, this particular research method? Um, if we're looking... I mean, books are books are a subset of communication and discourse. They're not they're not all of it, and the role that they have played. It does have volumes of the Annual Register and such like that. Okay, but so are we? Is it possible that conversations, ideas, can be in the discussion or a a genuine thing before people start writing about them in the ways that then end up in these kinds of databases? And does that does that color the data that comes out of it, or or as I think you might be saying, we get 
en- enough of the conversation is captured because we've got newspapers and other things that you know aren't just scholarly text. Could, could I amplify this with an example? Sure. So uh, nowadays we talk about the freedom of conscience and we all kind of know what that means. And there's a good chance that if you want to talk about the freedom of conscience, you're going to say freedom of conscience. Well, Roger Williams an early advocate of the freedom of conscience, didn't talk about it in those terms. He used the term soul liberty. And he meant something essentially identical to what we mean now. But if we were to do an engram analysis, we would come up dry. We wouldn't find that in his writings. But the focus of our exploration, both in Helena's book, as she makes clear, and in my take on these matters, which is not a book, alas, is a semantic history. I mean, it's about this term. First, it starts the adjective liberal, and that gets established, and then that naturally gives rise to nouns, both the noun liberal, like I am a liberal, and the liberalism. And that's the natural progression of all of these important ideas. So it's about a semantic history, Jason. I mean, we all know that, you know, liberty ideas have a much older history and are talked of in different I, ways. I, I understand that. I, I guess I may be questioning the value of of confining ourselves to semantic history. Then that that may be that's what a fair I'm, point. I'm aiming at. That's a fair point. I mean, maybe this isn't important. <laughs> but words, you know, these are words we use. I mean, why? What? Uh, I I um I just like to say we've done a similar research, which is uh, one of the things we we agree with is this um, how interesting it is to to do these engrams and word clouds and um, all this stuff that uh, the internet and computers make possible today. But what I found when I was doing these uh, extensive word searches on books, on newspapers to to understand the evolution of the meaning of the term liberal and liberalism, what I found mammoth, you know, so many references when you come up to, to liberal is to liberal arts, you know, liberal arts. They're talking about education or liberal science. And again, uh, you have to then pay attention to the way the word is being used in the sentence. It's not just a question of, you know, oh, it was used a million times. Like, what were they using it? You know? Yes. Do the semantic shifts, though, perhaps reflect contemporary political signaling? So, for example, nowadays, you hear the term social justice a lot. And even people who support or say that they support social justice may have a somewhat vague or or uh, inchoate idea of what that really means. Uh, but they will say it very frequently. And they do so in part to signal allegiance with a certain tendency or a certain coalition of tendencies uh, loosely associated with the political left, as we all know. Uh, and it's not so much that it's about uh, an ideology. It's more about being a part of a club. I think that's a fair point, but there is some analysis you can do about what, like, you might just imagine, hey, people started using this adjective liberal, and they started throwing it like my liberal shoes and, you know, that liberal door. And But you can do this, and I've done that, and it's the liberal plan, liberal government, liberal principles, liberal system, and so on, which are exactly the collocates that raise in the percentage points. You can see the picture right here, Jason. <laughs> um, and we'll, we'll put so, a link. These these slides that Dan are referencing are in the video version so, of your debates. We'll put a link to that in the no, show notes. No, it's a real thing. I don't know why Like, there's so much resistance to this. If I could just add this disagreement that Helena and I not, Helena and I have been exploring and with such pleasure and gratitude on my part um 
is I want people to understand that this we are replaying a very long-standing disagreement. Um, and I want to read a quote from 1960. Maybe some of you can guess who wrote this. It is often suggested that the term liberal derives from the early 19th century Spanish party of the liber- liberales following on the heels of the French Revolution a bit. I am more inclined to believe that it derives from the use of the term by Adam Smith in such passages of the wealth of nations as a liberal system and allowing every man to pursue his own interest his own way upon the liberal plan of equality, liberty, and justice. So there's actually a long tradition of people presenting what Helena is saying about the origination being from the French Revolution period and after, and Hayek saying, no, it starts earlier, what I'm saying. This debate that we've been having today... um, is, is clearly an interesting one and one that particularly is interesting to intellectual historians. It has academic interest. But for people who aren't in that world, for, for ordinary people engaged in the, the political sphere that we find ourselves in now, what, what should they learn from this story, this evolution of this term, this particular debate, like what lessons should they take from this going forward? I would like people to be aware of what they're saying when they use this word liberalism. I'd like them, if if you can draw one basic lesson, is simply to understand that you are using something that at this point is a very politically loaded term. It always has been, by the way. But to uh, understand that it's fraught, that there are debates about it, and therefore at least to know as as a starting point what you mean by the term term so that we can have, and then what others might mean by the term, so that we can have some common ground for fruitful debate. If people are confused and using the word in a haphazard or messy, uh, vague way, we can never make any political progress. We're living in a very conflictual uh, time. People are using words as weapons. And unless we can have reasoned conversations using the same vocabulary, we're not going to move forward. I actually think it pertains to helping people cope with modernity and what traditions we represent and are part of and want to affirm modernity coming particularly after, I would say, the 15th century and the printing, the the creation of the printing press and then print culture, then the idea of the public, then democracy and everything that follows, uh, you know, in the more recent centuries. A tremendous change, rise of markets, market liberalism, commercial society, and fragmentation, just like Marx said, just like Karl Polanyi said. And how are we going to cope with all this? And I think that's exactly what these guys were dealing with, from Grotius to into the guys we're talking about. And basically, my feeling is, is that the attitude that I suggest to people needs a name, And the best name for it is liberalism. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, you can find our Free Thoughts discussion group on Facebook or on Reddit at r slash Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Free Thoughts Pod. 
As always, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.